Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman, and I am your host for today's interview. I'm speaking with Kristen Sasaki. Dr. Sasaki is an assistant professor of ethics studies at the University of California, San Diego, and is the author of Pacific Confluence, Fighting Over the Nation in 19th Century Hawaii, which came out with the University of California Press last year in 2022. Welcome to the New Books Network, Kristen. Good to have you here. Thanks so much, Steve. I'm glad to be here. Why don't we begin, as we always do on this show, by just hearing Mm -hmm. a little bit about who you are. Tell us your background, and I'm particularly interested in what brought you to history. What got you interested in history? Yeah, um, thanks for that question. So um, I'm a fourth-generation Japanese, and I identify as a Japanese settler, and my family has been living in Hawaii now. for over a hundred years. And one of the things that really got me interested growing up in Hawaii um, was hearing all of these stories about my grandparents' lives as a kid. Um, You know, when I was a kid, my father's family owned an Alohaware garment manufacturing company called Malahini Sportswear um, that got its start during World War II. And it actually, you know, was one of the largest Alohaware manufacturing firms um, around during the Cold War. Um, And on my mom's side, my grandfather and his brothers grew up on the sugar plantations in Wailua. And they they were a really um, well-known baseball family. My great uncles played professional baseball in Japan. Um, And my my grandfather and his brothers were also in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team during World War II. So, you know, as as a kid, I was hearing all of these stories about the family business and great uncles playing professional baseball. And it just just fascinated me. And it really got me interested in family history um, and community history uh, with all of their, you know, life stories and and lived experiences. So that that is what turned me on to to history as, as a discipline, exploring these kinds of um, community community stories. You know, I ask all of my guests uh, some version of that question, and uh, that's something that I hear a lot. Is people mm-hmm. will say, you know, I just growing up, I just over time just got curious about why is the world around me the way it is? Why is my life right. kind of shaped the way it is? And it sounds right. like you were asking kind of similar questions. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious. I'm curious what also brought you to the the specific topic of this book. So you talked a bit about your your personal relationship with with Hawaii itself, but why this period in Hawaiian history specifically, the kind of uh, late 19th and early 20th century? Why this moment in in time? Yeah. So I mean, I just I'm just fascinated with uh, the 19th century. I think there's so much going on. Um, just if you look at the U.S. at the time, right, um, there's so much going on when you think about racial politics. Um, but, you know, during my time in graduate school, I was actually I went to graduate school thinking I was going to do a completely different topic. Um, but I started reading the work of Hanani K. Trask uh, and her book from a native daughter was so formative to me. 
Um, and it got me to start questioning things that I had always taken for granted. And one, one of the biggest was this idea of Hawaii as the 50th state, right? Like I had always grown up in Hawaii, thought of it as part of the United States um, and in graduate school uh, in my U.S. history program, I really grew frustrated with the way that Hawaii was being written about um, as, as 50th state, right? I, I didn't see an engagement with the kinds of critiques that Hanani K. Trask um, and other, you know, Native and Indigenous scholars were providing. And so um, I, I wanted to, to write something that was in conversation uh, with, with these scholars uh, and to challenge this, uh, you know, way that U.S. empire was narrated as a history of inevitable expansion. Um, and it, within that narrative, um, you know, the U.S. occupation of Hawaii was always framed as an event that was meant to be. Or in other words, like Hawaii was always understood and imagined only in relation to the United States. And that's something I also found very frustrating. Um, and that, you know, together, this narrative serves to further naturalize U.S. imperialism and occupation in places like the Hawaiian Islands. Right. So that the result of that is me growing up thinking, oh yeah, this is the way it was always meant to be. This is, this is, this is what should be. Um, and I kind of began to think differently uh, through, through that learning process. And I, you know, again, wanted to write something that, that provided a different outlook, that provided uh, a way of thinking outside of, um, of what is right now. Um, and, and it, for me, it was also writing from a place of hope. So that's, that's kind of what drew me to this period, um, and to this topic, just because I saw this kind of five-year period between 1893 and 1898, where, you know, no one was really looking into what was going on. Everyone was writing about it as, well, there was the overthrow and then it became part of the United States. I was like, wait a minute, but there's five years in there where you know, it, no one knew it was going to happen. There are all these different possibilities. So why don't we pause and look at that period and see what the possibilities are? And maybe we can, you know, think about, uh, maybe that helps us think about possibilities now as well. Often those are some of the most powerful histories that we can tell for the reasons that, that you just said, where, you know, if we look at the past and say there are all these branching possibilities of, you know, the way that things ended up didn't have to end up that way or possibly mm-hmm. might not have ended up that way, then the future feels much more open than it than it often does as well. I, I, re- I really like that. I, I got that out of the book as well. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, so the last time I spoke with a scholar of Hawaii on this show, it was a couple oh. years ago, I invited uh, Noe Noe Silva to, to come and talk about her book, The Steel Tip Pen. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, I asked this question that I want to ask you as well, because, you know, this is this is a podcast, uh, you know, one of the channels of the New Books Network. It's all about the American West. And in my own scholarship, in my own teaching and research and, and writing, I define the West very broadly. But mm-hmm. I'm curious if you think Hawaiian history belongs in Western history. How is or how is not uh, this a Western story? And if you say that it's not, we're not going to end the podcast or anything like that. We'll keep going. <laughs> but, but, but I'm curious if you think that, that this belongs within kind of the, the history of, of the West. What do you think? Well, I, I think that's just such an interesting question. Um, and it's complicated, right? Because I think it's important to consider how those at the time we're thinking, and for me at the time, by I mean, you know, like a uh, turn of the century, we're thinking of Hawaii as part of 
the American West or as part of, and I put this in scare quotes, right? The American frontier, right? So in that way, it does engage imaginings of the American West. So you could say, yes, it, you know, it does, it does belong uh, within that framework. But on the other hand, right, Hawaii also exists outside of the U.S. as as a sovereign space where where Native Hawaiians, you know, have never relinquished their right to to land and space. And so, you know, what does that what does that mean if we think about Hawaii as outside of the American West? Um, and what does that mean for us as historians and scholars uh, to think and write within that tension? And that's that's where I find myself, and and that's what I I find really powerful. Um, you know, to, to write within that space and to think about those kind of positionings in conversation with each other. Well, let's get into the history of of this place a bit, a little yeah. bit of the history of, of, of Hawaii. And, and, you know, sometimes I ask my guests to, like, you know, do the impossible task of summarize, like, a vast history in a little yeah. like, four-minute four minute answer. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, let me ask it this way. What is the immediate context for the start of the story that you tell in this book? Can you just kind of briefly explain the, I'm not going to give you a, a, a date range, but, you know, the, the couple decades that lead up to the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy in 1893? Sure. So you're right. There's a very long history. Um, I'll just try to, to provide something really, really quick and brief here. So, you know, there's there's a long history of U.S. interest in Hawaii as a strategic place in the Pacific. Um, Protestant missionaries first arrived uh, in the islands during their early 1820s. And during the Civil War, when the U.S. South can no longer provide, you know, sugar to the North, we really see the sugar industry in, in the Hawaiian Islands ramp up. Um, with many of the sugar plantation uh, owners, uh, you know, as the descendants of these original missionaries. And these families then grow to become a powerful, what we call a plantocracy, that start to work to diminish the power of the Hawaiian monarchy, right? And through things like the 1887 Bayonet Constitution, which, uh, you know, was basically uh, these Haolair, you know, white and foreign uh, oligarchs were uh, forcing the king, King Kalakaua at the time, to give electoral rights to men who are residents as opposed to citizen subjects of the kingdom. So we really start to see um, an erosion of of the power of the Hawaiian monarchy uh, beginning in 1887. And in 1891, there are two really important events. The US passes the McKinley Tariff, which then strips the plantation owners of profits um, that they were making um, through, through their imported sugar to the United States. And we see the passing of the crown to Queen Liliuokalani, who's uh, Kalakaua's sister. Um, and Liliuokalani, with the urging of members of the Hawaiian Patriotic Leagues, attempts to instate a new constitution that would restore the monarchy's power by limiting the ability to vote to men who had taken an oath of allegiance to the Hawaiian kingdom. So basically reversing what had happened in the 1887 Bayonet Constitution. Um, and again, the Halilid oligarchy understands, right, that, that one, um, their economic positions are in jeopardy because of the 1891 uh, McKinley tariff, but also um, that if Liliuokalani has her way and this constitution is passed, that this would also jeopardize their political and economic power in the islands. And so they they get together and they they instigate the coup in in 1893. So that's like a really brief, really brief history uh, over that the was... of yeah. <laughs> 
I, th- okay. I thought that was ex- that was extremely effectively well done. Good job. Okay. <laughs> um, and now my next question, uh, uh, which is, is is no easier, is and then what happens, right? So 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 what happens in the immediate aftermath of of this coup? How does Hawaii find itself? I, I think, if I remember correctly, the phrase used in the book is uh, kind of at the center of uh, an American and Japanese imperial rivalry. It's kind of at the center of this competition in the immediate aftermath of this of this event. Right, and and that's something that I just found really fascinating that. Um... That, that a lot of this usually gets skipped over, right? Everyone writes about this 1893, the overthrow happened in 1898. Oh, now we have a whole, uh, you know, U.S. territory. And there's so much in between in those in those five years. Um, you know, the Haole led oligarchy thinks, assumes that the U.S. is just going to annex uh, the Hawaiian islands right away. That doesn't happen. Uh, there's a lot of questioning that's going on in the United States. You know, do we want... Um, the population of the Hawaiian Islands to become uh, part of the U.S. Uh, you know populace. Um, so there's that. At the same time, we see uh, the Meiji government, um, you know, bec- at becoming an empire, like starting to occupy places outside and colonize places outside of uh, the you know Japanese main islands, and so. As part of this kind of ongoing, you know, encroachment in the Pacific, Japan also has its eyes on Hawaii, where uh, many of its emigrants are. And so right after the overthrow happens in January 1893, Japan very quickly sends over, you know, one of its uh, most sophisticated, uh, you know, uh, best warships to Honolulu Harbor right away. And this is where, you know, the book opens. The the Naniwa, their warship is docked in Honolulu Harbor. And that's kind of, you know, Japan sending a message like, hey, we're watching what's going on here and we are vested uh, in, in what happens. Uh, we also have, you know, um, Great Britain that, that also sends warships over. Uh, we know that Portugal is also watching what's going on in the Hawaiian Islands. So, you know, we've, there's, there's this um, kind of global powers or global powers in the making are paying very close attention to what's going on in Hawaii. At the same time, I've, you know, the provisional government um, at the time is, is kind of in limbo, right? Because they, they thought they were going to be annexed very quickly and that doesn't happen. And so there's just this five-year period of political instability, a lot of, you know, confusion. Um, and that's that's where this book opens. Um, and it was really fun for me to try to, and challenging, to write within that moment, right, where so much is going on. Yeah. Learning that uh, that the government of Japan had sent a warship into Honolulu Harbor that totally blew my mind. Reading that, right. I had I did not I had never heard of that before. And you know, in a couple years later, the United States is going to send uh, the USS Maine into Havana Harbor as kind of right. trying to send a similar message. And right. we all know how how how, how that goes. And that, and that is yeah, right. all, yeah, well, and that that's often kind of pointed to as an example of you know how the United States is engaging in gunboat diplomacy and empire right. building and everything. And right. Japan is doing the same thing. So that exactly. was such a good example of what you're trying to say in the book right. uh, at, at large. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> so much of, of this story and how it plays out also comes down to ideas about race. Can you explain mm-hmm. how, how race plays uh, 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 an important role 
in how especially the American government is thinking about and is treating Hawaii uh, uh, as an entity politically in the 1890s. I mean, this is coming not that long after, you know, things like Reconstruction in the American South. So how was the supposed racial makeup of the Hawaiian population, how was it such a point of contention among a lot of white Americans, especially powerful white Americans? Yeah, I mean, exactly that. I think that's one of the main concerns and issues that um, white Americans are thinking about as they contemplate contemplate uh, you know annexing the Hawaiian Islands is is the racial makeup. You know, they know that um, of course there are uh, you know Kanaka Maoli or you know indigenous peoples living in the Hawaiian Islands. How do you know? Uh, white Americans in the U.S. are like, how do we racialize that group? We know that there's uh, a large population of Japanese as well as Chinese in in the Hawaiian Islands. How, you know, how are we thinking about them racially? How do we racialize them? What what racial group do, do they belong to? Um, and there's in the book I talk about um, you know representatives from the South at the time who are who are saying, you know, what are we doing? We just we just fought this war. Now we're going to annex, uh, you know, Native Hawaiians who, and this is not me, if, but this is what the the politicians are saying that you know that are racialized as blacks, and we're going to add more of these people to to our American populace. Do we really want to do this? Um, you know, what's going to happen to white Americans? Hawaii is a place where white Americans are the uh, make up a minority of the population. Um, and so that that's really something that you see coming up in the political conversations. And I would argue is one of the one of the reasons why um, it takes five years, right, uh, to to annex the Hawaiian Islands. And even then, it wasn't really done, you know, through, you know, government procedure. It, it was it was kind of done in a roundabout way. So, yeah, race really does come into play heavily. Another uh, really fascinating story about uh, how how this is such a, a shifting moment when it comes to ideas about race in, in mm-hmm. American and in global, global history that you talk about in the book is the story of Portuguese uh, labor in mm-hmm. Hawaii. This, this was another thing that I had just known absolutely nothing about before reading your book. And you, you have a chapter that, if I remember correctly, you that, that's that's called uh, How the Portuguese Became White, uh, referencing mm-hmm. the, the kind of the, the famous book, How the Irish Became White. So mm-hmm. can you can you talk a little bit about Portuguese immigration to Hawaii and what this uh, uh, this 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 moment, this need for for labor, and how white oligarchs land on Portuguese immigrants? What this tells us about these shifting ideas and the kind of murky boundaries of uh, ideas about race and whiteness in late nineteenth century uh, 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 American history? Yeah, I mean that was that was something that also surprised me. I didn't when I went into this project, I didn't think I would be talking about whiteness right which might which might be sound odd but i you know i just assumed why you know that's not the story i'm going to tell but but um when i when i was researching and found that the Haler white oligarchs you know were looking for um a population to bring in as as immigrant labor to count to counteract or um you know an alternate pool that they could pull from so that they wouldn't pull uh, as many or bring as many Japanese and Chinese laborers in because because uh, the white you know oligarchs knew that the racial 
uh, composition of the Hawaiian Islands is one of the reasons why they were, they were having so much trouble becoming part of the United States, right? So they're looking for an alternate kind of uh, a white population, white immigrant population to bring into Hawaii, and they land on the Portuguese. Uh, and, and what's really interesting is that the Portuguese populations that they bring into the Hawaiian Islands are, are not coming from the you know Portuguese mainland, but they're coming from Portugal's colonies. Um, and these are colonies that are off the coast of Africa. So if you actually take a look at these you know, these people, these immigrants that are that are uh, entering Hawaii, they, they phenotypically um, they don't look white. Right. Like they 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 have dark skin. Um, and, you know, uh, the way that the Haole oligarchs like uh, Lauren Thurston writes about them, you would you would never know. Right. They, they publish all of this material, writing and expounding on um, all of the benefits of having these Portuguese migrants uh, now in in Hawaii and he you know Thurston writes about how they actually are white how they how they you know their behaviors are like white Americans and you know it, I think it's kind of written in defense right um, because when you actually take a look at the laborers of course I don't I don't think you would initially think they were um, as Thurston is describing them European Americans right or white Europeans and so um, yeah, you, you see a large population of Portuguese coming in and also points to the fluidity of whiteness, right? And the ways that whiteness was used, especially by these white plantation owners then um, to, you know, to try to create a society in Hawaii that they thought would be more, um, uh, I don't know, pleasing to the white American populace. So that was that was a chapter that I I was not expecting to write. I thought it was so much fun. Uh, getting into that research, um, and yeah, I, I I hope that people find it in, you know interesting. I, I did, and actually, I want to ask a, a little bit of of a follow, a sure. follow up to, yeah. to that question too. So, can you just explain a little bit more? Like, so why is there such a need for? immigrant labor in Hawaii in this time? And then and then why, like, why do these white oligarchs need labor so desperately? And then how do they land on this group of people in particular? Like, it, it almost feels like they just kind of spun the globe and this is where their finger landed upon. But I know that's not the case. So why do they need labor this badly? And how do they land upon these people? Right. So, I mean, if you, you know, if you think about, um, well, not that I've ever worked on a sugar plantation, but I mean, I, you know, I imagine that that plantation labor of any kind. So there's, you know, sugar plantations, pineapple plantations, coffee plantations. Those are kind of the big agricultural, uh, uh, you know, industrial plantation economy that that's in developing in Hawaii at this time it takes a lot of labor. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, when foreigners came to the Hawaiian Islands initially, you know, they brought with them a lot of, uh, you know, disease that spread to Native Hawaiians, indigenous populations. And so that that then resulted in a, a decimation of the Native Hawaiian population. So one, there's not a large or as large of a Native Hawaiian population with which to pull from. Um, you know, uh, working on plantations is incredibly taxing and hard. It's brutal work. So um, not everyone, you know, wants to work on the plantation. And so uh, plantation owners were always on the hunt to find cheap sources of labor, uh, 
places where that they could, you know, pull in large quantities uh, of labor. And so they, you know, they go to Japan and they go to China um, to to fill to fill this labor need. Of course, then that results in, you know, the large the large Asian population in the islands. And so they realize. Like, oh, oh, we have to do something about this if we ever want to become part of the United States. So where are we going to go? Um, and at that time in the 1890s, uh, what's also going on is the Portuguese empire is kind of in decline, right? And has is in bankruptcy. Uh, we have a lot of people from Portugal who are looking to migrate elsewhere. Um, they're going to places like Brazil. Um, and, and a lot of the ways that uh, the Portuguese kingdom at this time is remaining solvent is by these immigrants sending back remittances um, to Portugal. And so um, the Hale oligarchs know this. They go to Portugal in search of labor. And it just so happens that, you know, there's a large group of migrants that are looking for a place to go. These migrants are from um, the kind of colonial possessions of the Portuguese empire. And so um, they arrange for these, you know, hundreds of uh, Portuguese migrants to come over to Hawaii uh, to work. And so that that's how that, that story happens. Um, and again, they're purposefully doing that to kind of um, counteract, quote unquote, you know, the, the large Asian population and say, look, here, we're bringing in all of these, these white migrants now, um, so that we can you know, restructure the population of Hawaii. But, you know, d despite these, uh, th these goals by these white oligarchs, you still have thousands of Japanese workers that are also yeah, immigrating to, to, to the islands during, yeah, mm -hmm. during, during the late 19th century. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about them? What is their role and what's their position in Hawaiian society in this moment, in this kind of late 19th century, 1890s period? Right. So, so majority of the Japanese migrants in Hawaii at this time are working on plantations um, or some of them are merchants. Uh, but yeah, they, they, for a majority, are working as plantation labor. What's really interesting and what I found was really interesting in the book is that, um, you know, for a lot of these, these Japanese migrants at the time when they're, when they're coming from Japan, you know, Japan and belonging to Japan as a nation state or being a citizen and member of the Japanese nation state is not really a primary identity for this group of people at the time. Their primary identity might be from a certain village or a prefecture, right? And one of the things that I found so fascinating is that the, the notion of belonging to a Japanese nation state actually starts to form when Japanese or, you know, what we think of Japanese uh, migrants leave Japan right, uh, to go to places like Hawaii, because it's in places like Hawaii where they're encountering, uh, you know, um, their vulnerability, their political economic vulnerability in places like Hawaii that they're like, oh, well, we need, we need to find some type of political economic protection. Who, where's that going to come from? Well, that, that should come from Japan, right? And so the, then you see them starting to identify as members of of the Japanese nation state. At the same time, you see the Meiji government really start to, to care about this immigrant population, which they might not have cared about as much had they stayed in Japan. So it's, it's, um, for me, that was one of the most fascinating things that, that I just, you know, I, I was writing about, um, through this project. I'm also curious about um, again one of these one of these kind of lesser told stories from this era of of Hawaiian history was and I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right the Wahiawa colony 
and oh, yeah. um Wahiwa. yeah mm-hmm. Wahiwa, yeah thank you mm-hmm. um and and how it, it kind of plays considering it, it only exists for a relatively short period of time a pretty mm-hmm. outsized role in hawaii's history and, and changes the the kind of the, the the landscape and the history of this place pretty profoundly could you talk a little bit about uh about this colony and and sort of its import to hawaiian history yeah i you know this was the last chapter of the book um it was so much fun to write and it just i how did i even start so uh you know growing up on oahu i often wondered why in in wahiwa a lot of the the street names are it's like california avenue or you know pasadena avenue it's like why are all these names from especially southern california and so i started to look into um, the history of of Wahiwa, uh, and what I found was that there was um, in 1895 uh, the provisional government passes a land act, and basically it's based on the you know the Homestead Act uh, in the United States, and so it makes large parcels of land available for settlement. And in 1898, um, a man named Byron Clark, who at that time is based in Altadena, California. Uh, wants, you know, brings over a number of settlers from the Pasadena, Altadena area to Wahiwa. Um, They want to set up a homestead. Uh, And initially, they think that they're going to, you know, farm the land and live off off the land and kind of have this cooperative, um, you know, homestead community. What ends up happening is that um, they find that one of the only crops that can grow really well in this soil are pineapples. and so they, they end up, uh, you know, growing pineapples as a cash crop. Uh, and James Dole, uh, who's Sanford Dole, well, Sanford Dole is the president of the provisional government. His cousin is James Dole. So James Dole comes over. He also settles in Wahiwa Colony. Uh, and James Dole then forms Dole, Dole uh pineapple company or, you know, Dole, I think today we know it as Dole Foods, right? So it starts, it starts in Wahiwa Colony and starts in this place. Um, and, and one of the reasons why Wahiwa, even though it's short-lived as a colony is so important is that um, for, you know, those in the United States, they're looking at Wahiwa, which at that time is like a white only white settler colony. Um, and they are understanding it as, you know, the possibilities of the American frontier in Hawaii, right? Here in Wahiwa, you can, you know, make a living. Here in Wahiwa, um, the climate is wonderful. White people can thrive. I mean, these, this is the kind of narrative that's coming out of Wahiwa colony. This is how they're trying to sell it. Not that that meant that's what life was actually like, but that was definitely how they were trying to sell it. And I think, you know, that helps to convince the white American populace that Hawaii is a quote unquote safe, civilized place that white Americans can thrive in, right? Because the the other kind of um, way of thinking at this time was that, you know, white Americans, Europeans don't actually thrive very well in tropical climates, right? This was this was kind of one of the, the ways of thinking at the time. And so those in Wahiwa are really disproving that that notion um, and and demonstrating that white Americans can thrive in tropical places and you know uh, have a have a really profitable <laughs> experience in places like Wahiwa Colony. 
you know, it goes back to what we were talking about at the outset of, of our conversation, this idea of, at least for, for white Americans, putting the myth about the meaning of the American West onto this new place. And basically, exactly. in, in this in this example, uh, you know, basically using it as a selling point to get yep. more settlers to come to this place, say, look, this is just like what we did in the American West. We can do it here, too, in this new frontier of Hawaii. It's a really mm-hmm. fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So... As we begin to to wrap up here, I want to ask a couple questions that have us zoom out a little bit. And um, the first one, which kind of gets at some of the, the points you make toward toward the end of the book and the conclusion, is I'm curious what you think this story of just a couple really, you know, a, a short period of time, but a really uh, rich period of time, a really deep period of time in Hawaiian history here in the 1890s, the, the end of the 19th mm-hmm. century. What do you think it tells us about contemporary Hawaii today? And even more broadly than that, what do you think it tells us about settler colonialism in kind of a general sense? too well that, that just, <laughs> those are really broad questions I think but I, they're they're really great questions you know I I think along the lines of what I said at, at the beginning of our conversation um, you know it get it really gets us to think about what actually happened how how different uh, uh, organizations or formations uh, could have been and still could be, and I think that's that's one of the main messages of the of the book, right? To think outside of uh, what is now, and so if we can uh, zoom out and take a look at all of these different options, choices, um, you know, centers of power that were invested uh, in Hawaii, you know, as well as the Hawaiian Kingdom and Hawaiians themselves, then then there, you know, it tells you that there still exists so many possibilities today. And, and that's really something that I kept thinking about as I, as I was writing this book and exploring this history. And, and the second thing was, you know, for me, thinking about settler colonialism and especially Japanese settler colonialism for me, you know, as someone who works in the field of Asian American studies, uh, it complicated the way I thought about, um, Asians in diaspora, right? As, as in some ways the subjects, but also the agents of empire, right? The, the ways that they were being subjected to and sometimes in these intermediate spaces, you know, being pulled on by the US and Japan, for example, but also how they were making these choices, um, you know, sometimes at the cost of, of Hawaiians themselves uh, in order to, you know, further, further their own their own lives and and own lived experiences and and how that occurred in Hawaii. So um, that I guess that's what I was trying to do um, and keep in mind as I was writing that book. And then at the end of my interviews, I always um, I like to ask my guests to position themselves as a reader of, of this book, you know, put yourself in the shoes of someone mm-hmm. that's read this book and is thinking back on it, maybe talking with a friend about it a year down the line or five years after reading it. What would you hope they remember? What's the kind of one big takeaway that you hope a reader would would get or understand or remember from your book a few years uh, after after reading it? And you may have already touched upon this with mm-hmm. some of the things you're saying before, but mm-hmm. but yeah, what would you hope that would be? Yeah, I you know, I think it's just... I think it's come up in in this in this interview, but it's just that just because things are the way they are now doesn't mean that they have to stay that way, and that there were other ways, um, other paths that could have been taken, and that those pathways are still open, right? And we just need to be able to think outside of this one narrative that we've always been told. 
Um, and, and those, those other flashpoints, those other uh, possibilities are there if we look at, if we look back at the history. Um, and so that, that's the main takeaway for me. It's one of my favorite things about history and about teaching history to, to students. Exactly. Is to, you know, yeah. it, it, it makes it forces you to have to expand your your imagination a bit, you know, and to basically question everything, right? Like, oh, mm -hmm. why mm -hmm. is it this way? Does it have to be this way? Yeah, I think right. does a really good job of doing that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And then uh, for my for my last question, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what mm -hmm. they are working on next. Uh, this book, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's been out for about a year, um, and I'm curious what you've been working on uh, in the interim. Right. So um, it's it's a <laughs> it's actually the book the project that I thought I was going to do when I got to graduate school, and then I got sidetracked. Um, with, with the book that actually just came out. <laughs> and now I'm returning to the original project. So um, I'm actually working on a book that takes a look at the ways that um, militarism spreads through material culture uh, uh, in places throughout Oceania um, and the way that um, militarism operates. And militarism is uh, a term that was coined by the late scholar Teresia Teiva uh, to refer to the ways that um, the tourism industry masks the the, mili the military industry, uh, and, and uh, as you know, as it spreads throughout, um, in this case, the Pacific. And I'm looking specifically at uh, aloha wear. So I, maybe you know it as the Hawaiian shirt. You know those kind of flowery. I don't know, like the the shirts that Magnum PI used to wear. <laughs> Is, is, is one way that I, you know, those flowery shirts that tourists wear. But anyway, so I'm looking at the ways that Aloha wear has been used specifically by the U.S. Um, to spread and to mask militarism across its, uh, its you know, occupied places in the Pacific. Um, so that that's the next book. It's I know it sounds like it's really different from this first book, but it's, you know, in my mind, they're really they're related. Um, uh, and it's it's something that, you know, I find really interesting and fun. And especially with my background, you know, coming from a family that that used to make Aloha wear, um, it allows me to to talk to my talk to my family and, and really get to know the, the business history as well. Um, that sounds like an, an absolutely amazing project. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't want to give away too much of what you're working on, but I got to mm -hmm. ask one follow up. So, sure. so it basically, it sounds like that you can correct me if I'm wrong with this. I'm interpreting your own work here, but it sounds like what, what you're saying is, you know, the, the Hawaiian shirt as like a symbol and a driver of American empire. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yes, for sure. Um, and you know, during the kind of height of the pandemic, I, what made me return to this, to this topic was uh, seeing um, members. I don't know if you heard of this group, members of the Boogaloo Boys. One hundred percent. Yeah, I was. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah wearing wearing the Aloha shirt at at you know some of their their protests uh, and rallies, and you know reading reading a lot of um, editorials about you know how how this doesn't make sense or. Why are they wearing the Aloha shirt? And and actually, and I was thinking, well, actually, it does kind of make sense, you know. And I, I want to write about this, and so that, yeah, exactly. That's where, that's where this this is coming from. Um, thinking about Aloha wear as as one of the ways that U.S. empire spreads, you know, um, and to really investigate that. 
And given given your family's history in, mm-hmm. in creating Alohaware, I'm curious, uh, what, what do they think of this project? Are, are they are they <laughs> on board, or have you have you had any conversations with them about what you're working on? Yeah, I have actually. Um, there's I have two articles that that are out that are related to this topic, and the first article. Um, it's called, uh, I think it's called Threads of Empire. I can't remember right now, but Threads of Empire. Um, it, it, it talks about uh, my family's business history um, and all of the connections that it had to the military BXs and PXs. And that's really the way that uh, their company uh, you know, grew um, through these militarized connections. And that's, you know, I have had long conversations with my family members about it. Um, and it's it's been it's been really great, you know. They they've said to me, I you know, I never really thought about it this way. Or I, it's funny, like Aloha shirts are just so much a part of our life that you don't ever think about it, right? It's just work. It's 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 what we do for a living. And you know, um, and here I am trying to intellectualize, you know, what 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 the the family business is. So it's it's had some. I've had some really fun conversations with my family. Um, and I think they're all interested in seeing what comes out of it. So, yeah. Well, that sounds like a truly fascinating project. And whether or not people agree that Hawaii is part of the American West or not, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to have you back on the show when that book comes out because I want to talk more about that. Thank you. I, I'd love to come back. Dr. Kristen Sasaki is an assistant professor of ethnic studies at the University of California, San Diego, and her new book is Pacific Confluence, Fighting Over the Nation in 19th Century Hawaii, which came out with the University of California Press uh, just last year in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kristen. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks, Steve. I had a lot of fun being here.